Yeah, the passage we're going to go over today, as you can see on the screen, if you don't have your Bibles with you today, is First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. So if you could please uh, turn there with me in your Bibles, or like I said, you can look at the screen. God's word says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray one more time and ask God for some help today. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth therein. And we pray, Father, that uh, as I preach today, that your word uh, would not come back void, just as your word promises, Father. Just help us today to be attentive, Lord. I pray that whatever other uh, distraction or care of the world that might be uh, pulling us away, Lord, that you would just remove that from us and that you would be glorified uh, through the preaching this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. So we've been going through the book of First Peter uh, the past few weeks or maybe a couple months. And uh, Peter, uh, he's just written about uh, Christian conduct in a hostile world. Uh, and the re- recipients of Peter's le- letter, uh, they were particularly suffering. They had many trials and tribulations, and they were suffering uh, for Christ's sake. So if you remember back in chapter 3, um, verses 17 to 18, uh, Peter says, For it is better to suffer for good, suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So in, in this letter from Peter, the assumption was that we as Christians following the way of Christ, we, we would suffer, right? That's the underlying assumption. As Christians, you will suffer. And so Peter wrote this letter to encourage the, the readers and to encourage us today um, to persevere and encourage us in and through the suffering. Uh, but our passage today, as you, you see on the screen or in your word, it doesn't mention suffering, right? There's, there's no mention of suffering in our text for today, um, but it mentions the end and, and how we should conduct ourselves in light of that. Uh, so how does this, how does this end uh, that he starts verse 7 with, how does this all relate to our expected suffering as Christians? Um, so I hope to use a, a part of history today uh, to begin just to help us understand what Peter intends for the readers to understand and, and for us to understand. So some of you may know um, in 1889, which is maybe you don't know because that's a long time ago, but in 1889, heavy rain poured down near Johnson, Pennsylvania. And north from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, along the Connemaw River was a South Fort Dam that held about uh, 14 million cubic feet of water at bay. And so back then, uh, barge transport was very prominent, but it was transitioning to, to be railroad transport. So the dam and the associated lake were sold to the Pennsylvania Railroad, um, who later sold it to a private group um, to be used for recreation. And as you can imagine, the lake was the primary focus, but the dam kind of fell to the wayside. And to make the lake more attractive for their guests, um, the private group, they added uh, 
wires to the spillways so that the big fish wouldn't escape, so fishing would be better. Um, but also, there's a lot of uh, relief pipes and valves that were salvaged within the dam for scrap metal. So this created a vulnerable state in the dam, obviously. Um, but compounded this vulnerable state, the location of the lake and the dam uh, was prone to flooding, right? Steep ravines pouring down that uh, when it rained, the rain runoff or the snow melt just increased the the amount of water in the lake and it, it was just prone to flooding. And so all these factors taken into account, they paint a pretty grim picture. Um, and then when the heavy rain came in May 1889, uh, the fish nets that were used to trap those big fish, they clogged with debris. And then the, the water in the dam rise, the pressure increased, um, but there was no recourse. The, the relief valves and the, the metal that was salvaged uh, prevented anyone from releasing the pressure in the dam. So this vulnerable dam, exposed to extreme pressure, collapsed and over 2,200 people died in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So you might be asking, what, is this, what does this have to do? How does this all fit in? Well, Peter has written about the suffering to come. Uh, he's written about the pressures uh, on life that will weigh down on Christians because of their faith. And he has written to encourage them and us and exhort us to be ready when that suffering comes. So why? Because if, if we're not ready when the suffering comes, we will not be able to withstand the pressure, the pressure of suffering and the trials and tribulations that will inevitably come for those walking the way of Christ. So I've titled this sermon today, Living with the End in Mind, or, or Living with Eternity in Mind. And in our text today, Peter aims to, to give readers an eternal perspective as they walk through that suffering. So what is the end and how do I conduct myself walking to that end in the midst of trials and tribulations. And so to live with the end in mind or eternity in mind, we, we must see that, and I have two points. The first is that fervency in prayer is an invaluable commodity for the Christian. And then the second point is enduring love within the church is essential to withstand trials. And this enduring love is expressed in three ways. So the first way is overlooking sins or offenses. The, the second way is being hospitable. And the third way is using our God-given gifts to serve others and to bring God glory. So point one for the day, fervency in prayer is an invaluable commodity for the Christian. Uh, look with me at uh, verse seven of our text today. So verse seven says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So we can see in this first verse, Peter is writing about the nearing end and how we can, should conduct ourselves and, and live our lives in light of that. And we can view this end in two different ways, right? The, the one way to view it is the end of all things is at hand, which means that Christ can return at any time. Or we can also view it as we can die at any time, right? Our life is finite. We can die before Christ returns. Um, but it seems that Peter likely had the first option in mind that Christ can return at any time. And if we look at a few verses up in your Bibles, um, in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 4, Peter says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. And this judgment, or the end of all things that he mentions in verse 7, that's at hand, right? We're in the last days. In fact, Romans chapter 13, 11 echoes the same sentiment. So uh, Paul said in Romans, besides this, you know, the time 
that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So it's also true that, you know, it's true that Christ can return at any time. The end of all things is at hand, but it's also true that we can perish at any time. So Christ's return is nearer today uh, than when we first believe, and, and our end is nearer today than when we first believe. It keeps getting closer. So what does that mean, right? What is that supposed to do for us with, with living with that end in mind? Well, everything we do in this life is affected by that one thing. If you, if you live in light of eternity, in light of what happens at the judgment seat, whether you perish before Christ returns or he returns while you're alive, that affects how you live your life. Every relationship we have, um, every opportunity is affected by the fact that the near, the end is nearer now than it was yesterday. So, yeah, studying this, I asked myself, do I, do I believe this truth, right? Do I believe that the end is near? Does that affect how I live my life? I mean, do you, do you think that way? that I had less time than I do now than I did yesterday. And how does that affect how you walk through this life? The relationships you have, your relationship with your vertical relationship with God and your horizontal relationship. So that's what, that's what Peter means when he talks about a sober mind, right? It, it gives us clarity thinking with that eternity. It's realizing that you have one less moment now than you had the day before. And, and you should be self-controlled as you live out these last days. Right? Do you want to be caught with your former sins and temptations when the end happens, when, when it's time to be judged? And if you don't, sober-mindedness and, and self-control, um, that also includes putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So in, in verse 3 of the same chapter, Peter says, For the time that passes, for the time that is past suffice it, for the time is past, or sorry, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So the, the time for that is past, right? The day is here. The last days are here. Thus, we must be self-controlled and sober-minded. And in doing so, if you read the end of verse 7, we will be fit for prayer. It says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So you can be fit for prayer to enable you to pray. But but why is sober-minded and self-controlled not for the sake of your relationships? That would make sense, right? Like, be sober-minded and self-controlled because you will have productive and healthy relationships. Like, why, why does Peter say, for the sake of your prayer? He puts prayer on a pedestal. Why is that the case? Well, fervency in prayer, like we said in point one, is an invaluable commodity for the Christian. And we... We can't navigate the Christian life without it. So prayer is our means of, of communicating with God um, by the work of Christ and through the Holy Spirit to praise his name, to, to acknowledge his sovereignty in all things, and to ask him to do what he's already promised to do. This is a necessity for the Christian to navigate the Christian life because we are not walking through this Christian life in our own strength. And so how does self-control and sober-mindedness and impact prayer? How does it make you fit for prayer? Well, sin snaps prayerful, or prayerful dependence on God. It just, it just breaks that, for simplified terms, line of communication between us and God. And so we must be self-controlled and sober-minded to, to fight sin and continue to be dependent upon God through prayer. And in fact, if you skip forward to, to chapter 5, verse 8 in your Bibles with me, Peter says... Be sober-minded, 
be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So have you ever, have you ever prayed before and you just felt like you were not communicating with God? Um, you felt disconnected. Uh, you felt like your prayers weren't going anywhere. It's really a, a hard concept to explain unless you've experienced that. I've experienced that before in my life where I'm praying and uh, yeah, I just feel like I'm just talking to the wind. And so in those moments is that is that where you look to God and say, God, why aren't you why aren't you doing something for me or why aren't you listening to me? And you put the blame on God versus looking at your own life and, and questioning, am I am I living a sober minded and self-controlled life? Could this be the reason that I feel like my prayers are disconnected? Because it's it's something that that I'm doing or or a way that I'm living that makes me feel this way. So I would I would encourage you to, to consider that aspect if you're struggling with prayer. I'm not, I'm not saying that's what's happening, but I think as Christians, just like David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. I think we should be doing the same thing, especially in those difficult times. So Christ's nearing return isn't uh, a license to sit back and do nothing. Instead, uh, we must be watchful and ready. We must be self and self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers, right? This this is a, a necessity for the Christian to be able to pray to God, and that self-control and sober-mindedness enables us to, to be devoted to prayer. So when the storm comes in our lives and in our church, and when that pressure increases, we will be ready. When Christ returns or, or when we perish, we will be ready if we're self-controlled and sober-minded while we live with the end in mind. Now moving on to point two, enduring love within the church is essential to withstand trials to come. Now, but how, how is enduring love expressed and why is that essential to withstand trials and tribulations? In verse eight, Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So isn't it often the fact that, that suffering and trials and tribulations can affect our horizontal relationships? It's, it's expected, I guess, that when we're suffering and we're struggling, it's not a pleasant experience and we, we cry out to God and sometimes we question his sovereignty and his goodness in our lives and, and we're forced to, to persevere and, and continue to trust, but it, it, it creates difficulties at times in that vertical relationship, but also in our horizontal relationships, right? Our relationships can become strained um, and so Peter is writing this letter to, to a body of believers, trying to encourage them to maintain unity in the body amid these trials and sufferings. So above all things, Christians ought to love one another to maintain unity in the body amid the suffering. And the love Peter is talking about when he says above all things in eight, above, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This love is not thin and shallow, uh, it's not fragile. It does not become weary and faint. It is, it's deep. It's fervent. It's constant, robust, lasting. It's strong. It's committed. And that's the type of love Peter is, is writing about to the, to the readers. In fact, Colossians 3, it says that love is greater than faith and hope. And so in this context uh, of the passage we're reading and, and Peter, he is highlighting a special relationship between Christians. So he's, he's not... He's not not saying we shouldn't love everyone, right? 
Um, the greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but this relationship Peter is highlighting is, is a special relationship between Christians. It's a special bond that we have as members of this body, both the, the local and the universal church. And so there needs to be, like I said, this special bond. We're not casual observers in one another's lives, or, or at least we shouldn't be casual observers in one another's lives. We should be in, in each other's lives such that we need this advice from Peter. So think about that for a moment, right? If you if you are reading Peter this this passage in Peter, listening to the sermon, and, and you think you're like, well, I don't I don't know if I necessarily need this advice. Like this is not a struggle for me. Um, I I'm not worried about unity in the body. Uh, this this comes pretty easy. Or I don't I don't know anyone well enough in this church, so it's it's not really an issue. Well, that might be uh, another problem, right? Um, because the underlying assumption here that Peter has is that the Christians he's writing to, they're, they're a part of one another's lives. So if you're realizing sitting there that I don't, I don't know anyone here, I've been here for a while and I still don't know anyone, then I, I encourage you to, to reach out and, and meet someone and get to know uh, a person or a family. Um, find a way to spend some time with them uh, together outside of our normal church gatherings. Now, uh, although although living your life in view and participation of other people uh, produces many opportunities for suffering and for sinning against them or them sinning against you, uh, as, as Christians, we're called to participate in the body. I often hear uh, when we talk about fellowship, it's like iron sharpening iron. Well, if, have you ever seen two pieces of iron used like one, like you're filing it or you're sharpening a knife at home? Like that process is, it's uniquely violent. It's one piece of metal smashing against another metal, carving off little pieces of metal to sharpen it. It's, it sounds good, but when you think about practically what two pieces of iron smashing against one another looks like, it's, it's pretty violent, right? So not that we should be violent with one another, but as we live our lives together, it's, it's iron sharpening iron. Right? It's not going to be pleasant or easy at all times. It's going to be difficult um, because we are sinners saved by grace. We haven't arrived anywhere yet. Uh, so as we maintain unity or strive for unity, there's, there's always going to be some friction. And that's why Peter writes about this, this enduring love for others. And so when sin occurs, our enduring love for others enables us, like he says at the end of verse 8, to cover a multitude of sins. Now, as an example, uh, think about a courting couple. When a boy likes a girl, and vice versa, right? They they tend to promote all their similarities, not their differences. Um, you might suddenly turn into a runner because the person you like likes running, and you might never have ran in your life, but you just want to spend time with this person, so you suddenly run. Um, they're just things you want to do uh, to to spend time with this person, to relate to this person, to, to maintain unity with this person. Um, so the similarities are, are usually promoted above the, the dissimilarities. And so this is uh, a silly way of explaining what Peter's trying to say here. It's not a definite one-for-one -one comparison, but bear with me. So, but before we get there, what Peter isn't saying is that we should overlook sins. Like we should ignore sins or pretend that we didn't see something we did or something that happened that did happen. Peter's not saying overlooking offenses equals 
forgiving a sin as in like you're you are uh yeah that sin didn't happen you're absolved of it we don't have that um no man has the authority to absolve sin so in fact if we look at uh, james chapter 5 uh, verse 20 james says let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins this is the same language we see here in this text uh, James is saying that the, the one who restores the person will cover many of the sins uh, of the one who is strayed because there's forgiveness to the sinner when he repents and returns. So only we know that only God can cover sins. Like 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So only God can cover sin. But Christians, we can be agents of forgiveness. So likewise, Peter is saying that that our enduring love um, enables us to, to be agents of forgiveness. So it's not, it's not just enough for us to just put up with one another or to be decent with one another, put on a happy, smiley Sunday face and shake hands and hold babies. That's, that's not what he's, he's getting at, right? Our love for each other must be fervent. Not that those things are bad. Um, they're probably necessary, but not sufficient. And so back to our example of courting couples, just as they may promote their similarities towards unity, we as Christians must promote our similarities, our, our faith in Christ. That's the similarity that matters. That's what we promote above all things towards unity. And I guess you could see why this is important. So the stress that, that suffering produces can fracture relationships. Um, they can fracture the church body. Uh, so loving each other deeply through this time of suffering becomes difficult, right? If someone's not fully understanding your suffering, um, like maybe uh, say a, a new family with one child bemoaning the difficulties to a family with five children, right? They might go, okay, come on, guy. It's not that bad, right? Um, and not that's not necessarily the, the suffering uh, Peter is talking about, but just a point of illustration, right? Like are we... Are we using our suffering or does suffering create uh, fractures in the body? And sometimes it does. And yeah, that's, that's why he wrote this letter. So uh, loving each other deeply, like I said, is difficult and it's important because um, to love each other because it, it encourages forgiveness. It encourages forgiveness, which fosters peace. So this enduring love, like we said, which is expressed through the willingness to forgive our brothers and sisters, it's, it's essential to maintain unity in the body, maintain peace in the body, which enables us to promote the gospel of Christ, right? We can't be disunified in this church and try to promote the gospel, right? And all things we do should be for the glory of God. So it starts with us working in unison as believers, united in Christ, that similarity above all uh, for the glory of God and the promotion of the gospel. And then when the rain comes, then when the pressure increases, we will be able to withstand it, right? You're not alone in this when you're pursuing an enduring love for the other, the other Christians in this church. Now, like we said, the, the love Peter is writing about, it's fervent, it's strong, it's lasting, it's compassionate, it's robust, right? He's not talking about a feeling you have. It's not, I woke up this morning and I feel like I love the church body, um, he, he's talking about uh, like what you do, right? It's not what you feel. Think about when James talked about faith without works is dead, right? 
what James was saying is that our, our faith is expressed through our works. Similarly, Peter is saying here, our, our love is not expressed by a feeling, it's expressed through what we do. So along with, with overlooking offenses, which is one way of expressing that enduring love, it also becomes visible when we serve others. So if you look at verse 9, Peter says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, in, in Greco-Roman culture, hospitality was really important. We read through numerous passages, uh, passages in the Old Testament and some of the New Testament where hospitality is kind of put on display, right? Like someone being taken in. And, and that was very necessary back then because hotels or inns might not have always been safe or a good place for a family to stay, or they might just not have been available. Um, sometimes it was, a, it was a matter of life and death. So uh, hospitality was, was, yeah, a necessity. And hospitality, though, it, it requires sacrifice, right? So think about someone back in Greco-Roman culture traveling through your town. You don't know this person, and you might not ever see this person again. Right? It could just be a stranger, but you're being hospitable. You're providing them a place to stay. And therefore, you can't expect anything in return if you're not going to see this person. And so there's plenty of room in hospitality to grumbling, uh, to, to, that results in grumbling. Uh, Peter isn't writing this as a, this might happen. It's just he's saying this is going to be a natural response to you being hospitable. You're probably going to want to grumble because you have to give up your time and your resources. You have to give up yourself. And that's not an easy thing to do especially when there's going to be no return. So there, there, yes, like I said, seem to be plenty of reasons to, to grumble about this, but Peter says Christians are supposed to be hospitable, and hospita- hospitality is a way to express that enduring love to others. So we should, welcome, we should welcome friends, we should welcome strangers into our homes and lives to demonstrate God's love through Christ. Uh, but there's no specific re- uh, recipe for hospitality. I was sitting there, and I was like, what's the best way to dis- define hospitality? And as I was writing it out, I was like, well, it's not only that. It's not only this. And I'm sure you could find a, a really good definition for hospitality. But hospitality is more about the availability and the attitude that you have versus a specific activity. Right? Hospitality isn't entertaining someone. Um, not that that can't be a part of it, but it's it's getting to know someone and serving them uh, with the resources you have uh, in and out of your home. And and when we talk about hospitality sometimes in church, we often talk about it as a gift. Like, oh man, you have a gift of hospitality. Or this brother or sister is gifted in hospitality. And maybe I'm not gifted in hospitality. But in this text, I don't, I don't really see Peter giving us that description of hospitality or putting it in the category of a gift. In fact, Uh, We'll transition to verse 10 soon, but verse 10 is all about the gifts that we've received by God's grace, God-given gifts. Uh, So Peter exhorts us to be hospitable before he mentions the gifts we receive. So he's not saying that some of us have a gift of hospitality and, and some don't, right? The assumption is that if you are a Christian, you are hospitable. That's, that's the assumption. Uh, so another way we love each other earnestly is, is through hospitality. And, and when the storm comes and, and the pressure increases, we can lean on our brothers and sisters whom we know. Right? We've been hospitable to them. They've been hospitable to us. We, we can lean on them. Um, we, we can rely on one another through this suffering and this, this trials and tribulations to come. And we could share each other's burdens. And the great thing about hospitality, which 
is an example of your enduring love. It just, it's a, it's a cycle. It's a beautiful cycle. Hospitality produces more enduring love, produces more hospitality, and produces more enduring love. And you just keep growing in more hospitality and more enduring love for one another so that you can withstand the pressures to come. So I encourage you uh, as a member of this church to, to reach out, to, to find someone you know, uh, to be hospitable, to get to know them, to bring them into your home, to, to share the, your testimony with them, to, to ask them their testimony, get to know brothers and sisters so you can know specific ways to pray for them and how they can need help, and, and you could share the same, right? Um, the body means that we're uniquely intertwined as members in Christ, so it's not a, a disconnected union. It's a very connected, which I guess disconnected union is contradictory, but we're not disconnected. We're, we're unified in Christ. And so this is the same, right? The cycle of hospitality to enduring love back and forth just as it increases. This is the same uh, with our God-giving gifts to serve others. Now we get to first 10, where Peter talks a bit about our gifts. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So as each has received a gift, here's another assumption, right? All Christians have been given at least one gift by God for the purpose of serving others and to bring him glory. So there's an underlining assumption. And we want to be good stewards of this, of this grace, this gift of God's grace. And so what is a steward, right? Uh, Google Dictionary says, one who administers anything is an agent of another. That's one of the definitions, but I think that's very succinct and for our purposes this morning. One who receives something uh, as an agent of another. So the gift that we received is from God, and we act as good stewards by administering that gift as an agent of God. We're, we're serving others with our gifts that were given by God in order to bring him glory. So it's clear from that motion, maybe my hand and arm signals are communicating it. It's not about us. The gift comes from God for us to steward, to bless others for God's glory. And as we receive this gift, it's, it's, not, it's not a result of anything we did. We didn't work harder as a Christian. Um, we didn't uh, show up earlier than everyone else. Um, God gives us this gift because of grace and not merit. So we don't, we don't deserve any, any gift we get. That's why it's called a gift, right? God allows us to have gifts. And because we get this gift, we're, we're able to participate in God's work. Without, without those gifts, that if God didn't give us gifts, he, he would be saying, I don't, I don't want you to participate. But all, although we're weak and frail, God says, I'm going to give you a gift to serve and bring me glory. And so when we have opportunities to serve others, our, our attitude should be, oh, man, we have to serve again. Uh, it should be, praise God that he allows me to serve his body, that he's including me in his work for his glory. And as we get further on in the text, it talks about how the gifts vary from person to person. So it says, uh, good stewards of God's very grace. Now let's listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 14 to 17. He says, Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each, 
is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So your gifts that you receive, they're not comparable to someone else's gift. Our gifts are varied from God. It's different. We're, diff- we're, we're gifted in unique ways. There might be some overlapping things that you can kind of pick apart, but it's saying here our gifts are varied. And, and I like how Paul says it's for the common good. So God graciously gives gifts to his children, but the gifts vary. They're for the common good, the same good. They're for the same purpose, right? To serve others and glorify God. And so don't compare yourselves to someone else. Don't compare yourself to, to Gary setting up the projector or, or to Khalil putting down the children's mat in there, which is very tedious, and we could tell you some more about it. But don't compare yourselves to, to someone else's gift. The gift God gave you is unique to you, and so steward that gift for God's glory. And so Peter here categorizes our gifts into, into two main chunks. Those who speak, which seems to be referring to teachers and preachers, and, and those who serve in other ways. Um, if you look at verse 11, it says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in the first category, those who speak. So if, if we are... Speaking as one who speaks oracles of God, those who speak must not promote their own ideas, but faithfully declare God's word for they speak the oracles of God. So this is why on Sundays in Church of the Vine, we exposit God's word, right? We exposit God's word. We preach word verse by verse because they are God's word and not our own. And why do we do this? That in everything, like Peter says, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So it's not about the speaker and his own ideas or opinions. It's about the word of God and, and what that says, the truth of the word of God. And, and that's important, right? Because if teachers are giving a gift to serve others and they're speaking the oracles of God, then teachers and preachers can't look down upon others that are serving in different ways. So not doing it for God's glory, not doing anything for God's glory will create a sense of pride and, and puff up the one doing it. Um, but teachers and preachers re- must remember that, that teaching and preaching uh, is just one of many forms of suffering or of serving, right? God has called some to preach, to teach, and to serve in other ways. God doesn't necessarily distinguish those as one more important than the other. Sure, some of the responsibilities are different, but all of it is done to bring God glory. And similarly, those who there are those who, who serve in other ways. And what Peter is saying here is that you, you must not you must not depend on your own strength, but, but draw the strength to serve from God. You must not grumble against the, the gift that God has given you. Why? Because you're doing it for God's glory, or you should be doing it for God's glory. That should be, that should be who you look to as you're serving. And so another assumption that's here, right? The assumption here is that all of us are given gifts as stewards in service of others. So, I mean, I ask you, how are you using your gifts to serve the body? And keep you giving that some thought, like how are you using your gifts that God gave you uh, to serve other Christians and to bring God glory? I, I encourage you to pray about this and seek wise counsel. If you're like, I don't know how I'm gifted. Yeah, seek out a, a brother or sister and, and say, hey, can you can you help me work through this? Like, I'm not I'm not sure how this plays out in my own life, but 
the assumption is Christians are have enduring love for one another. They overlook offenses. They're hospitable and they serve. Um, and if you're struggling with how can I use my my abilities and talents to serve God, I, I recommend you seek out wise counsel and um, yeah, pray about it. Um, but but don't delay in finding opportunities. Don't wait till the the next sermon that talks about serving or hospitality or overlooking offenses to to be obedient to God's word. So if you feel like you're a gifted in in gift X, right? And but you struggle to find a need to use gift X in the body, that shouldn't be uh, an excuse not to serve, right? You shouldn't say, "Oh well, they don't need this," or "or I don't know how to serve in this way." Um, remember that it isn't this having gifts to serve. It's not about your fulfillment, right? God's not giving you a gift to do work so you are fulfilled. Not that serving the body and working for God's glory. Uh, won't increase your faith. Not that that's not the case, but it's not about finding the perfect way that makes you feel better about serving. It's it's about finding uh, needs uh, to serve so that you could benefit others and glorify God. And so you shouldn't also look at these opportunities as too little or too small. Uh, Serving others is for the glory of God and not your own recognition. So using our our God-given gifts in service of others uh, for the glory of God is an expression of our enduring love for others. So when the rain comes and and the pressure increases, we have practiced building one or more than uh, one another up. We have we have practiced serving one another and are primed to do so even when things are hard. We're we're practicing loving one another. We're practicing being hospitable. We practice building one another up. We we have some AC issues at home. And um, the temperature is, it's a warm outside, but it's not 90 degrees or 100 degrees all the time. And we've called, uh, someone's been out there five times in the past week and a half. Um, And I just don't find a sense of urgency in the guy fixing the AC. It's kind of like, oh, I think it'll work. Call me tomorrow if it, it doesn't. And it's just a rinse and repeat. And sometimes I wonder if they're thinking, look, man, it's not 100 degrees outside. Like, you can, you can wade through this. It's not that big of a deal. And so I almost feel like they're waiting for it to be 100 degrees for there to be a sense of urgency. Oh, now we need to look at this AC and fix it. Oh, now I see the problem. That's the same thing here. We shouldn't wait for trials and tribulations to come to be fit for prayer. We shouldn't wait for trials and tribulations to come to pursue enduring love through overlooking offenses or being hospitable or serving others. We shouldn't wait to, to need a, a brother and sister in Christ when there may be no one we know. You know, we shouldn't wait for the time we most need it to, to forge those relationships or to, to serve in the body, to glorify God in and through our suffering. That, that needs to happen now. And I'm not saying you're not suffering now. I'm just saying you don't wait to, to do those things uh, until you absolutely need a brother or sister to lean on or, or to rely on. So... The, the end is at hand, right? The end is at hand, so be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I mean, are we ready, church, for that? Are we, are we ready for the end? Are you ready for the end? Have you, have you considered that? I mean, I, I encourage you to consider that today. So if you're a Christian sitting in this room today, you, you have received God's hospitality through Christ. Be thankful for it and extend that hospitality to others. You have received gifts from God purely on the base of his grace and not your merit. Uh, 
So as stewards, we should use those gifts to serve others and to glorify God. And remember, do not compare your gifts with anyone else. Do not compare how you're serving the body with how someone else is serving the body. At the end of verse 11, Peter says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Not to, not to me, not to you. To God be belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And if you're not a Christian, if you're sitting in this room and you, you just you don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, know that, that God has made a way for you through Christ. He, he lived a sinless life because we couldn't. He, he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the, from the dead to defeat sin and death, and he's seated at God's right hand, interceding for, for those who believe. So the end is near. Christ will return soon, or you may perish before he does. He will either judge us faithful, or he will condemn us. So if you do not believe, I would encourage you to, to receive, I would implore you to receive this free gift of salvation today. Today is the day of salvation, so choose whom you will serve. Let us pray.